This is The Guardian. Today, it's 50 years since the UK's first Pride March. We speak to one of the pioneers who made that happen and to the LGBTQ campaigners who are fighting for our rights today. This weekend, tens of thousands of people will be marching through central London, in rainbow flags, in leather, in sequins and feathers. Since 1972, Pride has been a space for LGBTQ people to protest and to celebrate. So I come from quite a religious background. I go to a Catholic school. And so I don't see many visible displays of solidarity or sort of queer recognition. And I think for me, Pride is about sort of denouncing shame because for a very, very long time, I struggled a lot in my personal life with feeling very, very ashamed of who I was. I loved being at an event where you had people just like me, teenagers, but also people who were in their 50s, uh, 60s, 70s, you know, LGBT families, and just seeing people who had, you know, been part of the community for so much longer. Pride to me, it's kind of like the Queen's Jubilee, but we're all the Queen, and it's all our Jubilees, and it's basically like a massive party to basically celebrate being ourselves. Pride for me is all about love. And it doesn't matter who you are, everyone deserves love. And I'd say it is quite political and it should be political. Pride is solidarity. Pride is unity. Pride is community. Um, But ultimately it is about love. I launched Gaysians at Pride in London in 2017. We were a bit scared, I'm not going to lie, because we did think, wow, we're going to go out there as South Asian queers, are we going to get attacked? But eventually it was about the Pride is a protest, Pride is our day to celebrate. 50 years on from the first queer kiss-ins, when the Gay Liberation Front defied a government and a police force that was openly hostile to them, Some people feel that Pride has lost its political fervour, that it's become a commercial event. Why are the people who are leading the Pride parade quite often massive banks and companies? That's rainbow capitalism. And as as an unemployed crippled drag king, it's not what I'm really about. Around the world, attacks on LGBTQ people are still happening every day. In 69 countries, it's illegal to have a same-sex relationship. I think as we see an increase in anti-trans rhetoric and in general just anti-queer rhetoric, both in the UK and then abroad with things like the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, when there's so much adversity and so much conflict and disagreement and unfortunately hatred um, in the media and politics. It was so powerful to see so much joy. From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, 50 years of pride and why we still need it. 
I'm Ted Brown. I'm a veteran of the Gay Liberation Front. I joined in 1970 uh, when I was 20. And I think we've um, achieved a number of things, one of which is a better sense of uh, self-identity and pride in the LGBT community. As a teenager, did you feel that you could be openly gay? Oh, no, no. No one in those days could be openly gay. Um, It was very common in the school playground uh, for certain boys to be called a sissy. Uh, When I was 14, uh, my friend uh, committed suicide, and I suspect it was because he was realising that he was uh, gay and his family were very strict and very puritanical, and I knew that they would never have tolerated um, his sexuality had he grown up. And I felt very alone and isolated about um, at the situation. I realized I was attracted to some of the other boys. And um, out of depression about the situation, I came out to my mother uh, with the words, uh, Mum, I think I'm becoming homosexual. Because in, I didn't know any um, gay people. There were no gay magazines or other outlets. And I just felt I had to talk to somebody. And I knew that if I spoke to my mother, that she would never condemn me unless I was doing something that was vindictive or malicious. And she, first of all, said to me, well, you're going to have to deal with the hostility people have towards black people, which we had already been experiencing Mm. when we were living in Deptford and in Greenwich. And initially, when we first came to Brixton in 1959, but she said, you also have to deal with hostility that people have towards homosexuals. But she was actually able to be more positive because my mother had been involved in the civil rights movement in America And fortunately, had heard a speech by a man uh, known um, Bayard Rustin. And he said that one day, homosexual people, which he was, will be fighting for their rights in the same way that black people were fighting for theirs. God, what a remarkable man. And so your mum had seen him as an example, and she was able to say to you, but well, she was able to say that there's nothing wrong with your being homosexual, and you deserve um, equal rights in the same way as black people have been fighting for our rights together. Mm. So that was in 1965, and following the 1967 Sexual Offences Act, which had partially decriminalised some gay sex, up till that that law, any sexual contact between men was completely illegal. No kissing. Um, You could even be arrested for holding hands in public, that kind of thing. It was completely against the law, any homosexual activity by men, because lesbianism has never been um, illegal in, in Britain. Which didn't ever mean that it was championed or celebrated. It just meant it was ignored. Exactly. 
Then, in 1969, when I was 19, I read an article in a newspaper which was being very flippant and reporting that queens with their handbags were fighting off the police at a bar in New York. And I did cartwheels all around the living room. And that bar was the Stonewall Inn? Yes, yeah. Somebody, after they started throwing stones at the police who were trying to raid uh, the Stonewall pub, someone shouted gay power. And one day I was walking through on my way to work on the underground and I saw a poster um, advertising a film and the poster was in black and white and it said, this is Michael and it's his birthday and this is his present. And his present was a good-looking young man. So I guessed that this was a gay film, and it turned out to be the movie called The Boys in the Band, mm. which was Hollywood's first ever gay movie. So I beetled along <laughs> <laughs> to, <laughs> to the cinema, which, if I remember rightly, was possibly half to three-quarters full, mostly by what I imagined to be other gay men. Thanks, Sonny. You live with your parents? Yeah, but it's all right. They're gay. <laughs> and actually, at one point, the character says, um, I love him, and I don't care who knows it. And there's actually a gasp from the audience in the cinema. So I left the cinema. I didn't have the nerve to talk to any of the other people um, who was watching the movie. And there were some people leafleting, and it turned out to be the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. And the leaflets invited people to attend the next meeting of the Gay Liberation Front at the London School of Economics. And then you started going along to their meetings. What kinds of things did you discuss? Uh, well, it was all very... Um, Kind of haphazard, because one of the things that people uh, don't realize is that the Gay Liberation Front was never a, an established organization. It was a movement. So what was happening, we regularly had um, think-ins, which was us arguing that every single lesbian and gay man had been brought up in a heterosexual environment. And we wanted to rethink everything, and um, from the ground up. We discussed romance, we discussed one-night stands, cruising, uh, all sorts of things. Gosh, it must have felt so refreshing for you to finally be able to be speaking about all of that openly. Uh, well, it was doubly refreshing for me because uh, it was the first time I was meeting other gay people at all. Some of the other people there... Um, most of them were older because I was only 20 when I first joined. And there were others who had found gay bars and gay pubs and had lived their lives with a gay kind of a community, but a very sheltered one because obviously most of them couldn't come out. 
So we decided to have this demonstration and we decided to be very confrontational. And we kissed in the park. And in fact, the picture of me kissing somebody, uh, a guy in Hyde Park, is in the current issue of Attitude magazine. <laughs> if a, a policeman approached anybody who was kissing, eight or nine very flamboyant, very angry GLF people would turn up and hassle them. <laughs> and I think they didn't want the embarrassment of seeming to be outnumbered or outwitted by a bunch of poofs. <laughs> what you were doing was so brave. I mean, to take on the police like that, but you just did it in such a joyful way, which I think, you know, lays the foundations for much of what Pride has become, a celebration and a protest. How did the first event go down in 1972? What was that like? It was really important for us to come out and be seen and to show that we are proud of who we are and that we are not the stereotypes that are being circulated about us. I mean, there are disputes still about the number of people that were involved. Some people think it was about 700. Some people reckon maybe as many as 2,000 people altogether. So it was quite astonishing and also quite exhilarating because we had a mixture of excitement at the novelty of what we were doing, at the courage of what we were doing, and the risk of what we were doing, because we did not know how either the police or the public were likely to respond. And there were incidents of the police um, shouting abuse or being aggressive to several people. Occasionally, as we marched um, along Oxford Street, one or two people shouted abuse. But surprisingly, I think the majority of people seemed either bemused or supportive because every single one of us had spent our lives either in the closet or having to deal with hostility and sneers and comments about our sexuality and our personality. And here we were give, giving ourselves the opportunity to say to society, none of what you're saying about us is true. We're not going to put up with this anymore. And if you want to continue to persecute us, you're going to have a fight back. So yeah, here we are in the Grade 2 Victorian Listed Library. A lot of people come in and go, oh, isn't it like a proper library? <laughs> more worryingly, people say, it smell like a proper library, which are lots of dusty books, I think, maybe. My name's Steph Dickers and I'm the Special Collections and Archives Manager at Bishopsgate Institute and that's where we are in the wonderful Grade 2 Victorian listed library that we have here at the Institute. That's why it's quite echoey, probably. And what you've got here is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, collections of LGBTQ plus history in the UK. Can you tell me why it was set up and how you've managed to amass this beautiful <laughs> collection? 
I certainly can. Well, one never likes to boast, so I won't say I'm the biggest. Well, yeah, but we're definitely one of the biggest collections. So back in 2011, we were offered a collection here. A long history of collecting radical politics and London history. And literally, it's incredible. We literally get donations almost every day now from people because everyone's life is important and worth documenting. So, uh, yes, literally, I will take anyone's stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you've got you've got one here. This is a submission that's just come in. So yes, this is one example of uh, a wonderfully glamorous attendee called Tony who went to Pride in 1994, beautifully attired in drag. So he added this beautiful story. So first time in drag, I made the costume myself. I had this photo framed in my flat when my parents visited. Yes. On returning from the bathroom, my rather naive mother commented, "You know, there's a picture of a woman in there that looks just like me when I was younger." <laughs> And they're wonderful, they're, they're alive objects, they're not dead old relics, they're not museum pieces, they're stuff that tells us a lot about the community now, about where it should be going in the future. And what we're going to be talking about is one of the most recognisable moments in LGBTQ history in the UK, 50 years since the first Pride March in London. Can you show me something from 1972? I certainly can. So this is the very first programme for Gay Pride in 1972. As you can see, it's literally done on someone's typewriter at home. Uh, but starts very much off on a political note and talks about arrests that have been taking place and policemen in disguise. And it was actually not just a day, it was a whole week of events. So if you look through it, it's a sort of three pages of everything you could go to, from discos to the actual march... And then I love at the back, it's like, once it's all over, one that popped down to the concert at the uh, Royal Festival Hall, David Bowie? Just casually. Just popped down, yeah. It's a wonderful thing to have, and that was donated by someone who uh, gave us lots of other paperwork as well, but had obviously attended on that day and had kept that as a, a memento from the day when they went. And so then, as Pride marches go on through the 70s, do the pamphlets change? Do they get sort of more organised, more professional looking? Very much so. There's a bit of a lull after this one. But by the late 70s, particularly 1979, uh, they had a huge carnival that year, a huge Pride event, basically celebrating the 10 years since Stonewall riots. On Saturday, male and female homosexuals converged on Hyde Park for an open-air rock concert, the climax of Gay Pride Week. And into the 80s, the AIDS crisis obviously decimated LGBTQ communities across the world. How did Pride, as a political movement, as an event help support that and spread information about that and say to the LGBTQ community, we're going to stay visible and we're here to support you? Well, you see on the pictures, I mean, lots and lots of black and white pictures here from the 80s. And what you can see is really a lot of these organisations particularly and people themselves making statements of campaigns and, and protests about what was going on at the time, whether it be HIV, AIDS, you start to see groups like the Terence Higgins Trust marching, Body Positive, etc. But also I think, you know, the visibility of these organisations. We see lots around Section 28 as well. Margaret Thatcher's uh, putting in process in the Local Government Act that homosexuality couldn't be promoted as a normal relationship in schools and local authorities. Children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. So there's a big kick about that and you see lots of protests reacting very strongly to that. Mm -hmm. 
As the titles for the BBC's six o'clock news came on air this evening, two of the four women who invaded Television Centre burst into the studio. In the House Stop of Lords, a vote is taking place now on a challenge to the Stop poll tax. Tory rebels have said... And it's just, you know, a wonderful time to make these statements, Pride, obviously, because you have everyone there, the visibility of these protest signs at that time. And it's also always a moment of strength and the community coming together. So you see sort of wonderful moments like lesbian and gay support the miners out, campaigning for the miners. It was really illogical to actually say, well, I'm gay and I'm into defending the gay community, but I don't care about anything else. It's ludicrous. It's important that if you're defending communities, that you also defend all communities and not just one. The lesbian and gays has been super duper. And I mean that sincerely. There's no other words I can explain it. And the Miners Club of March uh, in 1985 at Pride. You can see how, you know, Pride sort of spreading its wings, becoming more bold and the community becoming more bold. And whether that's through struggle or through just visibility, you can see different groups coming involved and the number of groups expanding. Marchers from all over Europe joined a huge gay parade and festival in London this afternoon as the capital played host to Europride. And then we've seen very recently, which is wonderful to see Black Pride and Trans Pride as well. So you sort of see it develop and sort of spawn little wings off, which is great. And I guess one of the images that people think of when they think about Pride is the rainbow flag. How did that come into being? Well, so the rainbow flag was like an American invention. So Gilbert Baker in 78 comes up with the rainbow flag, uh, which obviously becomes a big symbol in America for gay rights after Harvey Milk is assassinated, etc. But to tell you the truth, looking through the prides and the stuff we have here, it doesn't really become visible, uh, I think at least until the late, late 1990s. If you were to look at the main London Pride parade now, you'd say... Well, this feels like a party, but looking over all of these pictures, as you said, there's always an element of celebration right from 1972. Mm. But I don't look at these photos and think, that looks like a party. It looks like a political event. Mm. So when did things change? I think we've always got to be quite careful because I think there was a lot of partying going on at Pride in the old days. You know, there was obviously a lot of political statements being made in the march, you know, seemed very much as a political statement in itself but you know there was always moments of joy as well as struggle at Pride. Even this first Pride uh, program we looked at, you look at the title of it, it's a carnival parade, you know it's not a intense political march and one thing we know through a lot of the collections we have here sometimes moments you think of are just moments of joy, queer joy, they're actually intensely political in their own way, you know the joy of unashamedly dancing around in the street being who you are is, is political, is holding a banner and walking along with it. So I think you notice that. And though there's a lot to be said about commercialisation of Pride, and you definitely notice that, towards the end of the 90s into the 2000s, you know, for a lot of people, Pride still functions in, in their first step to being out and who they are. And in the past few years, and I know you touched upon this, Black Pride has really gained momentum. Trans Pride has gained momentum. Do you have any artefacts from those? We're quite sad. So we do attend these events and collect stuff and go around and buy the T-shirt and bring it back into the archives. So we're recording these wonderful events as well and adding it to the history. So when we're doing this 
well, I won't be doing it, but when someone's doing this interview in the next 50 years, they'll be able to go, look at that Black Pride first programme. Oh, as, as, as we're doing with the 72 programme now. Okay, so my name is Sarah Savage. I am a trans woman, and my pronouns are she and her. And in my working life, I am the chief exec of Trans Pride Brighton and the Trans Community Centre. Can you tell me a bit about growing up? Where did you grow up and what were things like for you? Oh, I grew up in, a, um, in Jersey. And I was born into a very devout Jehovah's Witness family. That I call it a cult. It's very homophobic, very transphobic. And then how did you start to kind of reach out and try and find a community? Um, so I left when I was 17. Um, I just picked up and ran away. And so I just fell into friends groups. And I was just really lucky enough to find loads and loads of really accepting people who just loved me for who I was. So, you know, I gradually kind of came out to them a little bit, bit by bit. And I started transitioning when I was um, about 30. Welcome everybody to Trans Pride. This is a protest march. We march because we are not equal. We are here to show as community that we stand together. Trans Pride. And the first Trans Pride Brighton in 2012, you had about 300 people attending. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we, we had it all. We, we hoped for 300. I think we got about 800 in the first um, one. Um, and so how has it developed in the years since? I mean, so now, you know, we planned for, for 10,000 people. We've got the largest protest for trans rights um, outside of America. It's, it's enormous. And it's working, you know. We, we've managed to keep the ethos that we, we, we started with. And obviously, the main Pride Parade has been running for years and years in Brighton. Why do you think trans pride is needed as a separate event? So I, I think the clue is in the wording of your question. <laughs> there's, a, there's a difference um, legally between a parade and a protest march. And I think that's what's quite different about the trans community at the moment, is that despite all the progress... Over the last five years or so, the conversation for trans rights has really been dragged down to the gutter and trans and non-binary people have been under attack in the media for too long now. And this means that we've still got so much to protest for. Pride started as a protest. And I think we're just carrying on that mantle, you know. Um, we've, we still haven't got many of the rights or people are trying to take away the rights that we have. Um, and this makes a lot of people feel angry, it makes a lot of people feel scared and alone, and trans pride exists to, to prevent that, you know? And it is a protest, as you said, and it's clear to see why that's needed, because you just look at the Home Office data, over 2,000 hate crimes were recorded as having been committed against trans people last year. When you're organising this march, you've got to make sure that people feel safe to be out on the streets. And we had the situation at London Pride in 2018 where this group called Get the L Out were protesting, saying that trans people are undermining lesbian rights. And of course, trans people 
felt threatened as a result of that. The organisers of Pride in London later apologised. How did seeing what happened there impact the way you go about planning your event in Brighton? So we've just decided the best way to react was to prepare. We ended up having meetings with the police about it um, and we discussed different ways that, that they might respond to such a counter-protest. And we made a call out on our social media or um, stewards for volunteers to come and marshal the march. And so we ended up getting over like 200 cis allies, volunteers, people calling up and saying, I need to be there, I need to protect the trans community from these kind of anti-trans attacks. And so what really happened was, was it was a really positive vibe. And I want us to remember whilst we are marching that we need to march not just for ourselves, but those that are more vulnerable than us. It must just be joyful. You must just have moments of euphoria, right? When you're, you've spent months and months planning this event and then you're in the middle of it and you just look around and see a sea of happy faces. Oh, it's changed my life completely. Like I trained as a mechanic when I left school and like I worked on building sites and really like nothing to do with community at all. And now every time I stand on stage at the start of an event and I see thousands of people coming in, it's just such an amazing experience. You know, every year someone comes up to me in tears, tearfully, genuinely, and it's usually more than one person and tells me, that this is the first time that they've been out and dressed as the person they really are. You know, you forget that, like, like, you know, I still think about the first trans woman I ever recognised that I saw in real life in a, in a train station um, when I was, like, 14. And I still think of her because she was just living her life. She was just getting on with her, with, with her life, you know, and... and that's what trans pride essentially shows. It shows, you know, trans and non-binary people just getting on with their life and, and, and living happy lives, living their best life, you know? Coming up, Ted on whether pride still serves its political purpose 50 years on. About 30,000 people are going to be taking part in London Pride, uh, the parade that's happening on Saturday. And over a million people are going to be out in London going to events and parties that are related to that. When you think about those numbers, building on an event that you were so integral to creating, how do you feel? It's a great change from days when um, some of the early marches that GLF had when we went to uh, lesbian and gay pubs and asking them to come out because our argument was the personal is political. Your personal life actually does matter in terms of society. And we uh, really celebrate the fact that there are now many more people who are out and proud. But there are two dangers with that. One is that people take it for granted and don't realize that many of those rights that we've hard fought for can be taken away. 
Secondly, they may not appreciate the battle that it took for them to get to that point. When we were marching back in 1972, we were hoping for equality, but we had no idea that we would achieve something like civil partnerships or gay marriage in that time because there had been so much hostility against lesbians and, and gay men that we knew we were fighting an uphill battle. And um, I'm sure a lot of you are aware of what's happening with Roe and Wade in America and that one of the Supreme Court judges, one of the worst ones, Clarence Thomas, has actually said that after we've gotten rid of the right for abortion for women, we are going to be looking at the laws allowing and encouraging gay marriage and various other rights that have been won in the last few years. GLF is very much still going, but you're not going to be involved in the main London Pride March on Saturday, tomorrow. You're holding your own event, aren't you? Uh, Yes, the veterans of the Gay Liberation Front who marched in 1972 are recreating that march today at one o'clock. And anybody can come along to that, can't they? Yes, anyone can come along. Um, If you're good-spirited and enthusiastic, and if, for instance, you have mobility problems, we have an open-top bus and some rickshaws and various other uh, facilities to help you uh, with the the march. We're not going to be going at at breakneck speed. (laughs) In fact, we think we're going to take maybe two or three hours to go from... Uh, St. Martin in the Fields and Trafalgar Square to get to Hyde Park because of the numbers of people that are going and the fact that many of the elderly um, GLF people are now in their 70s, 80s, and there are one or two people who are actually 90 who are coming for that march uh, because they want to be there. They want to remember um, what we have achieved and contribute to Um, an event that we hope will continue in the future and that we hope won't be needed um, in another 50 years. It's clear to see why Pride is still so needed. I mean, just in the past week, there have been Pride events happening all around the world. People held a Pride in Istanbul, even though it's technically banned there, and they got arrested in Oslo, 21 people were injured and two people were killed because a gunman shot at them when they were just outside a gay bar. And they've still, in defiance, held a pride. I mean, thinking about that is so important, what you've created. Yes, and and one of the things that, that we have to remember is that not everybody is out, even today. There are a lot more people who are out, but there are still people living in environments... Um, maybe in families or in jobs where to come out would would endanger their lives, endanger their, their income, endanger their own self-esteem. We want a situation where people are able to do whatever they want as long as they're not being vindictive and attacking and hurting other people. And uh, we want that to be the maxim that 
goes on into the future and there's still a lot that needs to be done. Thank you for what you've done for LGBTQ people. Like I really, really appreciate it. Um, You've laid a foundation for us all to be able to live much more comfortably and happy lives. Thank you, thank you. That was Ted Brown, Steph Dickers and Sarah Savage. Thanks to them and to Olive, Ryan, Lax and Emma, who you heard in the intro to this episode. If you've got memories, artefacts, maybe clothes or photos from Pride events that you want to share, Steph Dickers and his team at Bishopsgate Institute are working on a new collection called the People's Pride Archive, and they want to gather as many stories as possible from the past 50 years. Whether pride to you means parading with thousands of people or just sharing a kiss with one other person, go to bishopsgate.org.uk forward slash people's pride archive to get involved. That's it for today. I produced this episode alongside Tom Glasser. Thanks to David Batty and Natalie Chtena for production support. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. Our executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. <laughs> 